0: Section 1 of History of a Literary Radical and Other Essays by Randolph Bourne This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of a Literary Radical and Other Essays by Randolph Bourne Section 1. History of a Literary Radical For a man of culture, my friend Miro began his literary career in a singularly unpromising way. Potential statesmen in log cabins might miraculously come in touch with all the great books of the world, but the days of Miro's young school life were passed in innocence of Homer or Dante or Shakespeare or any of the other traditional mind-formers of the race. What Miro had for his nourishment outside the Bible, which was a magical book that you must not drop on the floor, or his school readers, which were like lightning flashes of unintelligible scenes, was the literature that his playmates lent him, exploits of British soldiers in Spain and the Crimea, the death-defying adventures of young filibusters in Cuba and Nicaragua. Miro gave them a languid perusing and did not criticize their literary style. Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer somehow eluded him until he had finished college, and no fresher tale of adventure drifted into his complacent home until the era of Richard Carvel and Janice Meredith sharpened his wits and gave him a vague feeling that there was such a thing as literary art. The classics were stiffly enshrined behind glass doors that were very hard to open. At least Hawthorne and Irving and Thackeray were there, and Tennyson's and Scott's poems. But nobody ever discussed them or looked at them. Miro's busy elders were taken up with the weekly outlook and independent and Christian work, and felt they were doing much for Miro when they provided him and his sister with St. Nicholas and the youth's Companion. It was only that Miro saw the black books looking at him accusingly from the case, and a rudimentary conscience slipping easily over from Calvinism to culture forced him solemnly to grapple with the Scarlet Letter or Marmion. All he remembers is that the writers of these books he browsed among used a great many words and made a great fuss over shadowy offenses and conflicts and passions that did not even stimulate his imagination with sufficient force to cause him to ask his elders what it was all about. Certainly the filibusters were easier. At school, Miro was early impressed with the vast dignity of the literary works and names he was compelled to learn. Shakespeare and Goethe and Dante lifted their plaster heads frowningly above the teachers as they perched on shelves about the room. Much was said of the greatness of literature. But the art of phonetics and the complications of grammar swamped Miro's early school years. It was not until he reached the high school that literature began really to assume that sacredness which he had heretofore felt only for holy scripture. His initiation into culture was made almost a religious mystery by the conscientious and harassed teacher. As the Deadwood Boys and Henty and David Haram slipped away from Miro's soul in the presence of Milton's Comus and Burke on conciliation, a cultural devoutness was engendered in him that never really died. At first, it did not take Miro beyond the stage where your conscience is strong enough to make you uncomfortable, but not strong enough to make you do anything about it. Moreau did not actually become an omnivorous reader of great books, but he was filled with a rich grief that the millions pursued cheap and vulgar fiction instead of the best that has been thought and said in the world. Miro indiscriminately bought cheap editions of the English classics and read them with a certain patient incomprehension. As for the dead classics, they came to Miro from the hands of his teachers with a prestige even vaster than the books of his native tongue. No doubt ever entered his head that four years of Latin and three years of Greek, an hour a day, were the important preparation he needed for his future as an American citizen. No doubt ever hurt him, that the world into which he would pass would be a world where, as his teacher said, Latin and Greek were a solace to the aged, a quickener of taste, a refreshment after manual labor, and a clue to the general knowledge of all human things. Miro would as soon have doubted the rising of the sun, as have doubted the wisdom of these serious puckered women, who had the precious manipulation of his cultural upbringing in their charge." Miro was a bright, if a rather vague, little boy, and a fusion of brightness and docility gave him high marks in the school where we went together. No one ever doubted that these marks expressed Miro's assimilation of the books we pored over, but he told me later that he had never really known what he was studying. Caesar, Virgil, Cicero, Xenophon, Homer were veiled and misty experiences to him. His mind was a moving present, obliterating each day what it had read the day before, and piercing into a no more comprehensive future. He could at no time have given any intelligible account of Aeneas's wanderings or what Cicero was really inveighing against. The Iliad was even more obscure. The only thing which impressed him deeply was an expurgated passage, which he looked up somewhere else and found to be about Mars and Venus caught in the golden bed. Caesar seemed to be at war and Xenophon wandering somewhere in Asia Minor with about the same lengthiness and hardship as Miro suffered in reading him. The trouble, Miro thought afterwards, was that these books were to his mind flickering lights in a vast, jungle of ignorance. He does not remember marveling at the excessive dullness of the stories themselves. He plodded his faithful way, using them as his conscientious teachers did, as exercises in language. He looked on Virgil and Cicero as essentially problems in disentangling words which had unaccountably gotten into a bizarre order and in recognizing certain rather amusing and ingenious combinations known as constructions. Why these words took so irritating an order, Miro never knew, but he always connected the problem with those algebraic puzzles he had elsewhere to unravel. Virgil's words were further complicated by being arranged in lines which one had to scan. Miro was pleased with the rhythm, and there were stanzas that had a role of their own, but the inexorable translating that had to go on tore all this fabric of poetry to pieces. His translations were impeccable, but, as he never wrote them down, he had never before his eyes the consecutive story. Translations Miro never saw. He knew that they were implements of deadly sin that boys used to cheat with. His horror of them was such as a saint might feel towards a parody of the Bible. Just before Miro left school, his sister in a younger class began to read a prose translation of the Odyssey, and Miro remembers the scorn with which he looked down on so sneaking an entrance into the Temple of Light. He knew that not everyone could study Latin and Greek, and he learned to be proud of his knowledge. When at last he had passed his examinations for college, his Latin composition and grammar, his syntax and his sight-reading, and his Greek composition and grammar, his Greek syntax and sight-reading, and his translation of Gallic battles and Anabatic frosts and Dido's farewell and Cicero's objurgations, his zealous rage did not abate. He even insisted on reading the Bucolics while he was away on his vacation and a book or two in the Odyssey. His family was a little chilled by his studiousness, but he knew well that he was laying up cultural treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not corrupt, neither do thieves break in and steal. Arrived at college, Miro expanded his cultural interests on the approved lines. He read Horace and Plato, Lysias and Terence, impartially, with faithful conscience. Horace was the most exciting because of the parodies that were beginning to appear in the cleverer newspapers. Miro scarcely knew whether to be amused or shocked at odi periscos, or integer Vitae, done into current slang. The professors, mild-mannered men who knew their place and kept it, never mentioned these impudent adventures, but for Miro it was the first crack in his Ptolemaic system of reverences. There came a time when his mind began to feel replete, when this heavy pushing through the opaque medium of dead language began to fatigue him. He should have been able to read fluently, but there were always turning up new styles, new constructions to plague him. Latin became to him like a constant, Diet of beefsteak, and Greek like a constant diet of fine wheaten bread. They lost their taste. These witty poets and ostentatious orators, what were they all about? What was their background? Where did they fit into Miro's life? The professors knew some history, but what did that history mean? Miro found himself surfeited and dissatisfied. He began to look furtively at translations to get some better English than he was able to provide. The hair-splittings of Plato began to bore him when he saw them in crystal-clear English and not muffled in the original Greek. His apostasy had begun. It was not much better in his study of English literature. Miro was given a huge anthology, a sort of press-clipping bureau of Belles-Lettres, from Chaucer to Arthur Simons. Under the direction of a professor who was laying out a career for himself as poet, or modern singer, as he expressed it, the class went briskly through the centuries, sampling their genius and tasting the various literary flavors. The enterprise reminded Miro of those books of woolen samples which one looks through when one is to have a suit of clothes made. But in this case, the student did not even have the pleasure of seeing the suit of clothes. All that was expected of him, apparently, was that he should become familiar from these microscopic pieces with the different textures and patterns. The great writers passed before his mind like figures in a crowded street. There was no time for preferences. Indeed, the professor strove diligently to give each writer his just due. How was one to appreciate the great thoughts and the great styles if one began to choose violently between them, or attempt any discrimination on grounds of their peculiar congeniality for one's own soul. Criticism had to spurn such subjectivity. Scholarship could not be willful. The neatly arranged book of readings, with its medicinal doses of inspiration, became the symbol of Miro's education. These early years of college did not deprive Miro of his cultural loyalty, but they deadened his appetite. Although almost inconceivably docile, he found himself being bored. He had come from a school a serious boy, with more than a touch of priggishness in him and a vague aspiration to be a man of letters. He found himself becoming a collector of literary odds and ends. If he did not formulate this feeling clearly, he at least knew... He found that the literary life was not as interesting as he had expected. He sought no adventures. When he wrote, it was graceful lyrics or polite criticisms of William Collins or Charles Lamb. These canonized saints of culture still held the field for Miro, however. There was nothing between them and that popular literature of the day that all good men bemoaned. Classic or popular, highbrow or lowbrow, this was the choice, and Miro unquestioningly took the orthodox heaven. In 1912, the most popular of Miro's English professors had never heard of Galsworthy, and another was creating a flurry of scandal in the department by recommending Chesterton to his classes. It would scarcely have been in college that Miro would have learned of an escape from the closed dichotomy of culture. Bored with the classic and frozen with horror at the popular, his career as a man of culture must have come to a dragging end if he had not been suddenly liberated by a chance lecture, which he happened to hear while he was at home for the holidays. The literary radical who appeared before the Lyceum Club of Miro's village was none other than Professor William Lyon Phelps, and it is to that evening of cultural audacity Miro thinks he owes all his later emancipation. The lecturer grappled with the modern novel, and tossed Hardy, Tolstoy, Turgenev, Meredith, even Trollope, into the minds of the charmed audience with such effect that the virgin shelves of the village library were ravished for days to come by the eager minds upon whom these great names dawned for the first time. Jude the Obscure and Resurrection— were of course kept officially away from the vulgar, but Miro managed to find smoke and virgin soil and Anna Karenina and the warden and a pair of blue eyes and the return of the native. Later, at college, he explored the forbidden realms. It was as if some devout and restless saint had suddenly been introduced to the Apocrypha. A new world was open to Moreau that was neither classic nor popular, and yet which came to one under the most unimpeachable auspices. There was, at first, it is true, an air of illicit adventure about the enterprise. The lecturer who made himself the missionary of such vigorous and piquant doctrine had the air of being a heretic, or at least a boy playing out of school. But Miro himself returned to college a cultural revolutionist. His orthodoxies crumbled. He did not try to reconcile the new with the old. He applied pick and dynamite to the whole structure of the canon. Irony, humor, tragedy, sensuality suddenly appeared to him as literary qualities in forms that he could understand. They were like oxygen to his soul. If these qualities were in the books he had been reading, he had never felt them. The expurgated sample books he had studied had passed too swiftly over the Elizabethans to give him a sense of their lustiness. Miro immersed himself voluptuously in the pessimism of Hardy. He fed on the poignant torture of Tolstoy. While he was reading Resurrection, his class in literature was making an intensive study of Tennyson. It was too much. Miro rose in revolt. He foreswore literary courses forever, dead rituals in which anemic priests mumbled their trite critical commentary. Miro did not know that to naughtier critics even Mr. Phelps might eventually seem a pale and timid Gideon himself stuck in moral sloths. He was grateful enough for that blast of trumpets which made his own scholastic walls fall down. The next stage in Moreau's cultural life was one of frank revolt. He became as violent as a heretic as he had been docile as a believer. Modern novels merely started the rift that widened into modern ideas. The professors were of little use. Indeed, when Moreau joined a group of radicals who had started a new college paper, a relentless vendetta began with the teachers. Miro and his friends threw over everything that was mere literature. Social purpose must shine from any writing that was to rouse their enthusiasm. Literary flavor was to be permissible only where it made vivid high and revolutionary thought. Tolstoy became their god, Wells their high priest. Chesterton infuriated them. They wrote violent assaults upon him, which began in imitation of his cool paradoxicality and ended in incoherent ravings. There were so many enemies to their new fervor that they scarcely knew where to begin. There were not only the old tables of stone to destroy, but there were new and threatening prophets of the eternal verities who had to be exposed." The 19th century, which they had studied, must be weeded of its nauseous moralists. The instructors consulted together how they might put down the revolt and bring these sinners back to the faith of cultural scripture. It was of no avail. In a short time, Miro had been converted from an aspiration for the career of a cultivated man of letters to a fiery zeal for artistic and literary propaganda in the service of radical ideas. One of the results of this conversion was the discovery that he really had no standards of critical taste. Miro had been reverential so long that he had felt no preferences. Everything that was classic had to be good to him. But now that he had thrown away the books that were stamped with the mark of the classic mint and was dealing with the raw materials of letters, he had to become a critic and make selection. It was not enough that a book should be radical. Some of the books he read, though impeccably revolutionary as to ideas, were clearly poor as literature. His muffled taste began to assert itself. He found himself impressionable where before he had been only mildly acquisitive. The literature of revolt and free speculation fired him into a state of spiritual explosiveness. All that he read now stood out in brighter colors and in sharper outlines than before. As he reached a better balance, he began to feel the vigor of literary form, the value of sincerity and freshness of style. He began to look for them keenly in everything he read. It was long before Moreau realized that enthusiasm, not docility, had made him critical. He became a little proud of his sensitive and discriminating reactions to the modern and the unsifted. This pursuit had to take place without any help from the college. After Miro graduated, it is true that it became the fashion to study literature as a record of ideas, and not merely as a canon of sacred books to be analyzed, commented upon, and absorbed. But no dent was made upon the system in Miro's time, and the inventory of English criticism not going beyond Stevenson, no college course went beyond Stevenson. The Elizabethans had been exhumed and fumigated. But the most popular attention went to the gallery of Victorians, who combined moral soundness with literary beauty, and were therefore considered wholesome food for young men. The instructors all remained in the state of reverence which saw all things good that had been immemorially taught. Moreau's own teacher was a fragile, earnest young man whose robuster parents had evidently seized upon his nature as a fortunate pledge of what the family might produce in the way of an intellectual flower that should surpass in culture and gentility the ambitions of his parents. His studiousness, hopeless for his father's career as a grocer, had therefore been capitalized into education. The product now shone forth as one of the most successful and promising younger instructors in the department. He knew his subject. Card indexes filled his room, covering in detail the works, lives, and deaths of the illustrious persons whom he expounded, as well as everything that had been said about them in the way of appreciation or interpretation. An endless number of lectures and courses could be made from this bountiful store. He never tried to write himself, but he knew all about the different kinds of writing, and when he corrected the boy's themes, he knew infallibly what to tell them to avoid. Miro's vagaries scandalized his teacher, all the more because during his first year in college, Miro had been generally noticed as one with the proper sobriety and scholarly patience to graduate into a similar priestly calling. Miro found scant sympathy in the young man. To the latter, literary studies were a science, not an art, and they were to be treated with somewhat the same cold rigor of delimitation and analysis as any other science. Miro felt his teacher's recoil at the idea that literature was significant only as the expression of personality or as interpretation of some social movement. Miro saw how uneasy he became when he was confronted with current literature. It was clear that Miro's slowly growing critical sense had not a counterpart in the scholastic mind. When Miro and his friends abandoned literary studies, they followed after the teachers of history and philosophy, intellectual arenas of which the literary professors seemed scandalously ignorant. At this ignorance, Miro boiled with contempt. Here were the profitable clues that would give meaning to dusty literary scholarship, but the scholars had not the wits to seize them. They lived along playing what seemed to Miro a rather dreary game when they were not gaping reverently at ideas and forms which they scarcely had the genuine personality to appreciate. Miro felt once and for all free of these mysteries and reverences. He was to know the world as it has been and as it is. He was to put literature into its proper place, making all culture serve its apprenticeship for him as interpretation of things larger than itself, of the course of individual lives and the great tides of society. Miro's later cultural life is not without interest. When he had finished college and his architectural course and was making headway in his profession, his philosophy of the intellectual life began to straighten itself out. Rapid as his surrender of orthodoxy had been, it had taken him some time to live down that early education. He found now that he would have to live down his heresies also, and to get some coherent system of tastes that was his own, and not the fruit of either docility or the zeal of propaganda. The old battles that were still going on helped Miro to realize his modern position. It was a queer, musty quarrel, but it was enlisting minds from all classes and of all intellectual fibers. The classics were dying hard, as Miro recognized whenever he read, in the magazines, attacks on the new education. He found that professors were still taken seriously who declared in passion that without the universal study of the Latin language in American schools, all conceptions of taste, standards, criticism, the historic sense itself would vanish from the earth he found that even as late as 1917, professional men were gathering together in solemn conclave and buttressing the value of the classics with testimonials from successful men in a variety of occasions. Miro was amused at the fact that the mighty studies once pressed upon him so uncritically should now require, like the patent medicines, testimonials as to their virtue. Bank presidents... Lawyers and editors had taken the Latin language regularly for years and had found its effects painless and invigorating. He could not escape the unconscious satire that such plump and prosperous Americans expressed when they thought it admirable to save their cherished intellectual traditions in any such fashion. Other conservatives Moreau saw to be abandoning the line of opposition to science only to fall back on the line of a defensive against pseudoscience, as they seemed to call whatever intellectual interests had not yet become indubitably reputable. It was a line which would hold them... Rather strongly for a time, Miro thought, because so many of the cultural revolutionists agreed with them in hating some of these arrogant and mechanical psychologies and sociologies that reduced life to figures or organisms. But Miro felt also how obstructive was their fight. If the classics had done little for him except to hold his mind in an uncomprehending prison and fetter his spontaneous taste, they seem to have done little more for even the thorough scholars. When professors had devoted scholarly lives to the classics only to exhibit in their own polemics none of the urbanity and intellectual command which were supposed by the believer somehow to rub off automatically on the faithful student, Miro had to conclude an absence of causal connection between the classics and the able modern mind. When, moreover, critical power or creative literary work became almost extinct among these defenders of the old education, Miro felt sure that a revolution was needed in the materials and attitudes of culture. The case of the defenders was all the weaker because their enemies were not wanton infidels ignorant of the holy places they profaned. They were rather cultural modernists, reforming the church from within. They had the classic background, these young vandals, but they had escaped from its flat and unoriented surface. Abreast of the newer objective, impersonal standards of thinking, they saw the weakness of these archaic minds which could only appeal to vested interests in culture and testimonials from successful men. The older critics had long since disavowed the intention of discriminating among current writers. These men, who had to have an academy to protect them, lumped the younger writers of verse and prose together as anarchic and naturalistic, and had become, in these latter days, merely peevish and querulous, protesting in favor of standards that no longer represented our best values. Everyone in Miro's time bemoaned the lack of critics, but the older critics seemed to have lost all sense of hospitality and to have become tired and a little spitefully disconsolate, while the newer ones were too intent on their crusades against Puritanism and Philistinism to have time for a constructive pointing of the way. Miro had a very real sense of standing at the end of an era. He and his friends had lived down both their old orthodoxies of the classics and their new orthodoxies of propaganda. Gone were the priggishness and self-consciousness which had marked their teachers. The new culture would be more personal than the old, but it would not be held as a personal property. It would be democratic in the sense that it would represent each person's honest, spontaneous taste. The old attitude was only speciously democratic. The assumption was that if you pressed your material long enough and winningly enough upon your culturable public, they would acquire it. But the material was something handed down, not grown in the garden of their own appreciations. Under these conditions, the critic and appreciator became a mere impersonal register of orthodox opinion. The cultivated person, in conforming his judgments to what was authoritatively taught him, was really a member of the herd. A cultivated herd, it is true, but still a herd. It was the mass that spoke through the critic, and not his own discrimination. These authoritative judgments might, of course, have come, probably had come, to the herd through discerning critics, But in Miro's time, judgment in the schools had petrified. One believed not because one felt the original discernment, but because one was impressed by the weight and reputability of opinion. At least, so it seemed to Miro. Now, just as the artists had become tired of conventions and were breaking through into new and personal forms, so Miro saw the younger critics breaking through these cultural conventions. To the elders, the result would seem mere anarchy. But Miro's attitude did not want to destroy, it merely wanted to rearrange the materials. He wanted no more second-hand appreciations. No one's cultural store was to include anything that one could not be enthusiastic about. One's acquaintance with the best that had been said and thought should be encouraged, in Miro's ideal school, to follow the lines of one's temperament. Miro, having thrown out the old gods, found them slowly and properly coming back to him. Some would always repel him, others he hoped to understand eventually. But if it took wisdom to write the great books, did it not also take wisdom to understand them? Even the Latin writers he hoped to recover with the aid of translations. But why bother with Greek when you could get Euripides in the marvelous verse of Gilbert Murray? Miro was willing to believe that no education was complete without at least an inoculation of the virus of the two orthodoxies that he was transcending. As Miro looked around the American scene, he wondered where the critics were to come from. He saw, on the one hand, Mr. Mencken and Mr. Dreiser and their friends going heavily forth to battle with the Philistines, glorying in pachydermatous vulgarisms that hurt the polite and cultivated young men of the old school. And he saw these violent critics in their rage against Puritanism becoming themselves moralists with the same bigotry and tastelessness as their enemies. No, these would never do. On the other hand, he saw Mr. Stuart P. Sherman in his youthful, if somewhat belated ardor, revolting so conscientiously against the naturalism and crude expression of current efforts that, in his defense of Bell's Lettres, of the fine tradition of literary art, he himself became a moralist of the intensest brand, and as critic plumped for Arnold Bennett, because that clever man had a feeling for the proprieties of human conduct." No, Mr. Sherman would do even less adequately. His fine sympathies were as much out of the current as was the specious classicism of Professor Shorey. He would have to look for the critics among the young men who had an abounding sense of life as well as a feeling for literary form. They would be men who had not been content to live on their cultural inheritance, but had gone out into the modern world and amassed a fresh fortune of their own. They would be men who were not squeamish, who did not feel the delicate differences between animal and human conduct, who were enthusiastic about Mark Twain and Gorky, as well as Roman Roland, and at the same time were thrilled by Copeau's theater. Where was a better program for culture for any kind of literary art? Culture as a living effort, a driving attempt both at sincere expression and at the comprehension, of sincere expression wherever it was found, appreciation to be as far removed from the I know what I like as from the textbook impeccability of taste. If each mind sought its own along these lines, would not many find themselves agreed? Moreau insisted on liking Amy Lowell's attempt to outline the tendencies in American poetry in a form which made clear the struggles of contemporary men and women with the tradition and against every affectation of the mind. He began to see in the new class consciousness of poets the ending of that old division which culture made between the chosen people and the Gentiles. We were now to form little pools of workers and appreciators of similar temperaments and tastes. The little magazines that were starting up became voices for these new communities of sentiment. Miro thought that perhaps at first it was right to adopt a tentative superciliousness toward the rest of the world so that both Mr. Mencken with his shudders at the vulgar demos and Mr. Sherman with his obsession with the sanely and wholesomely American might be shut out from influence. Instead of fighting the Philistine in the name of freedom or fighting the vulgar iconoclast in the name of wholesome human notions, it might be better to write for one's own band of comprehenders in order that one might have something genuine with which to appeal to both the mob of the bourgeois and the ferocious vandals who had been dividing the field among them. Far better a quarrel among these intensely self-conscious groups than the issues that had filled the Atlantic and the nation with their dreary obsolescence. Far better for the mind that aspired towards culture to be told not to conform or worship, but to search out its group, its own temperamental community of sentiment, and there deepen appreciations through sympathetic contact. It was no longer a question of being hospitable towards the work of other countries, Moreau found the whole world open to him in these days through the enterprise of publishers. He and his friends felt more sympathetic with certain groups in France and Russia than they did with the variegated prominent authors of their own land. Winston Churchill, as a novelist, came to seem more of an alien than Artzibashev. The fact of culture being international had been followed by a sense of its being. The old cultural attitude had been hospitable enough, but it had imported its alien culture in the form of comparative literature. It was hospitable only in trying to mold its own taste to the orthodox canons abroad. The older American critic was mostly interested in getting the proper rank and reverence for what he borrowed. The new critic will take what suits his community of sentiment. He will want to link up not with the foreign canon, but with that group which is nearest in spirit with the effort he and his friends are making. The American has to work to interpret and portray the life he knows. He cannot be international in the sense that anything but the life in which he is saturated, with its questions and its colors, can be the material for his art. But he can be international and must be in the sense that he works with a certain hopeful vision of a young world and with certain ideal values upon which the younger men, stained and revolted by war, in all countries are agreeing. Miro wonders sometimes whether the direction in which he is tending will not bring him around the circle again to a new classicism. The last stage in the history of the man of culture will be that classic which he did not understand and which his mind spent its youth in overthrowing. But it will be a classicism far different from that which was so unintelligently handed down to him in the American world. It will be something worked out and lived into. Looking into the future, he will have to do what Van Wyck Brooks calls inventing a usable past. Finding little in the American tradition that is not tainted with sweetness and light and burdened with the terrible patronage of bourgeois society, the new classicist will yet rescue Thoreau and Whitman and Mark Twain and try to tap through them a certain eternal human tradition of abounding vitality and moral freedom and so build out the future. If the classic means power with restraint, vitality with harmony, effusion of intellect and feeling, and a keen sense of the artistic conscience, then the revolutionary world is coming out into the classic. When Miro sees behind the minds of the masses group a desire for form and for expressive beauty and sees the radicals following Jacopo and reading Chekhov, he smiles. At the thought of the American critics, young and old, who do not know yet that they are dead. End of section one.